Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my dapper colleague, friend, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? I'm dressed up for the ECTI training in Alexandria, Virginia today. So Tim's had his uh, professor hat on today. Exactly. He always has his professor hat on, but today... Um, even more so he had to actually wear it so um not not just figuratively so good to see you professor o'toole um back safely back from a trip abroad um thanks to everybody for tuning in we we delayed our normal recording in part because of uh some international travel uh and other scheduling issues that uh we had the last couple weeks but happy to be back uh bringing you our first episode here in november of embargoed thanks to everybody as always, for tuning in for the feedback that we got in the last couple of weeks since our last episode. Um, unclear whether this may be our only episode in November, considering that we have the Thanksgiving holidays coming up, but um, we are uh, recording this here on November uh, 8th. Um, we have a relatively, I think, compact agenda for you today. We're going to hit on a lot of China content today, um, and then um, one interesting development in an ongoing uh, criminal case in SDNY that we haven't touched on in a while that we wanted to um, bring up, and I think that's about it. So um, without any further delay, let me just jump right in. So as always, we are uh, not providing legal advice. We're not sharing any confidential information. All opinions are mine or Tim's. If you disagree with them, please blame us. If you like the pod, please subscribe. You can find us anywhere you get your content. Please leave us a rating hopefully a five-star rating and spread the word uh, about embargoed. So um, with that, let me do a quick rundown of what we're going to cover today and then um, maybe just uh, some some quick thoughts before we jump in. So we're going to we're going to stick with a, a thematic through line that we have had on the last couple episodes. We're going to do a lot of cyber today and a lot of China. And so we're going to start with the new interim final rule that was rolled out by BIS a couple weeks ago on cybersecurity items. We're going to cover also um, some other actions taken by BS and the end user review committee on some additional entity list designations. And OFAC just jumped into the fray again today with some more cyber related designations. So um, continuing a, a theme of late. So that's going to be kind of topic number one. We're going to touch on Huawei, a couple of interesting articles that have been um, out recently on, on activities of Huawei on the um, amount of authorized and perhaps unauthorized um, US origin items that Huawei has still um, been able to obtain since the entity list restrictions were tightened on them um, last year. And then um, a, a brief word about um, China Telecom and a pretty consequential action that has finally been taken by the FCC with respect to China Telecom's um, licensing status here in the uh, U.S. And then we're going to cover, we're going to pivot away from China briefly to talk about the Hawk Bank case and a recent ruling by the Second Circuit in that case and whether that now paves the way to trial in that case and also some broader potential implications of, of that ruling, I think. And, and then finally, in the lightning round, just one topic, we're going to circle back to one that we touched on the last time, which is um, uh, Taiwan. And in particular, just checking in on on a couple of other developments in the in the past few weeks with respect to Taiwan and and how the U.S. and China are kind of um, uh, positioned uh, 
sort of in, at an increasingly fraught point with respect to Taiwan and, and what may be next. So before we jump in, Tim, any any thoughts before we, we get going here? No, I, I think, you know, we are continuing on the same themes. We've got China and we've got cybersecurity, and I think that's going to cover most of what we're going to talk about today with a little bit of Iran sprinkled in. Yeah, no, no, no real news on JCPOA 2.0, so we're leaving that aside for the for the day. But um, but yeah, so without without any um, further ado, let me let's jump right into topic number one. So as I mentioned, um, a couple weeks ago, this is now a couple weeks um, since it's been three weeks since we recorded. So on October 20, BIS announced that they were releasing an interim final rule, establishing controls on uh, certain cybersecurity items that can be used for malicious cyber activities. So this is interesting. And as I mentioned, um, and as we'll talk about a bit more, there were a few days later, there were some entity listings that also relate to malicious cyber activity, targeting entities in uh, Israel, Russia, Singapore. And then just today, actually, OFAC got into the fray and designated some entities, mostly in, I believe, Russia, Latvia, Estonia, that um, are also implicated in malicious cyber activities. So still a lot of activity in this space, but but to talk for a moment and just to quickly kind of recap for those who missed it, the interim final rule, I think this is interesting for a few reasons and I'll just kind of run through them quickly. So this, for those who aren't following this, this is um, you know, not, not a very broad sweep to this rule um, as, as one can imagine by what I just described, sort of cybersecurity items. Um, that are pretty pretty narrowly defined under the, under the regs, but this is sort of a, a final step or a potential close to final step in implementing something that has been um, was teed up uh, under Wassenaar and under the Wassenaar arrangement many years ago and was debated and proposed in the U.S. and then the U.S. we BIS and company were not happy with where we netted out with that, so went back to Wassenaar to sort of the Wassenaar group to sort of renegotiate. And that was now 2017, and and then finally coming out of that, this is essentially meant to kind of implement um, the what was agreed to there in terms of some of these um, controls and cybersecurity items. Um, interestingly, there are so this is mostly going to impact. And again, I encourage everybody to take a look at the rule who maybe has not looked at this interim final rule. As I mentioned, it was released October 21. The comment period is running. It's a 45-day comment period, so it expires on December 6th. The interim final rule is scheduled to go into effect um, January 19, so early 2022. Um, a couple of things that I would note. So um, this is mostly impacting category four and five under uh, the commerce control list. Um, it is, as I said, sort of an implementation of a, of a Wassenaar arrangement um, regime relating to these types of items. It has taken the U.S. a while to, um, to come up with um, you know, changes to the regs that will, um, that will sort of are believed to satisfy sort of in particular sort of private industry and, and many different government actors as well. Um, there are some end user and end use restrictions that go along with these, as, as you can imagine, they, um, and there is in fact a new license exception that goes along with these rules, which is the ACE license exception, authorized cybersecurity exports, ACE. Never, they never fail to come up with um, pithy uh, abbreviations for for these for these things. So, 
Um, the ACE license exception is now going to be in effect, assuming this stands as part of the final rule. Um, and, and so notably, um, that license exception is not going to be available uh, to certain countries, including countries subject to U.S. arms embargoes. So China, this will not be, um, nobody will be able to avail themselves of that exception with respect to China. Um, and as I mentioned, there are some end user and end use restrictions that go along both uh, government and non-government end users, uh, depending on the context. And um, and so there, there, there are quite a few kind of moving parts to this rule, but we, we did want to highlight it for a couple of reasons. Um, again, I think it's interesting that now, again, the Wassenaar arrangement that was negotiated that this is implementing has been in a, this is now four years in the past. So it's been quite some time since that was put in place. Um, and this is this rule is now just being rolled out. So it'll be interesting to see because there was such a, I don't know if uproar is quite the right word, but there was a lot of criticism, I think, of the original rule that was rolled out back in, I think it was 2015, to implement the original kind of Wassenaar arrangement that was reached uh, back in almost a decade ago now. So it'll be interesting to see whether this is really going to fly and pass muster or how the comments are going to come in to look at this. Um, and then obviously this is, you know, consistent with everything that we've been seeing, uh, the recent OFAC guidance that we've been talking about on the pod and some of the other activities that we've been talking about a lot of late. Um, you know, this is just another sort of another vector to get at the, in particular China uh, and the use of these types of cybersecurity items for malicious cyber activity and surveillance in particular uh, that may be used to perpetrate human rights abuses and otherwise. So this is kind of, this is somewhat interesting and I think important from the perspective of this is another kind of aspect of the holistic strategy that the US kind of export control uh, and trade um, and national security regime is bringing to bear to sort of get at the same problem. We've now, we've touched on it from many different angles here. This is, um, you know, a pretty powerful one, obviously, and with this new license exception uh, and the fact that authorizations and licenses are still going to be required to China and other, and certain other um, more highly controlled countries, that is, um, I think, not surprising, but pretty significant that this is now going to go into effect. So, so let me just pause there and sort of toss it to Tim for for any for any thoughts he may have on this. Yeah. So, what I like about this this new interim rule is in part that BIS was appears to have been very considered about this. That is, they came out with a proposed rule. They got a lot of criticism for the proposed rule in terms of its workability, and they went back to the drawing board and and came up with something that. You know, it's very topical, obviously, but but it is important to get this right. And I think the outcry from industry was in part because a lot of the items that you need, particularly with respect to cybersecurity, uh, companies need these items in order to test their systems. Unfortunately, they're also the same items that hackers use to hack the systems. And so coming up with a system of workable controls that allows industry to protect itself, but at the same time, puts restrictions on the availability of these items is hard. And so so it took a while, but it, it probably should have taken a while when things are hard. And, and hopefully this rule will will fit the bill better than the last one. From a quick read, it looks to me like it probably will. Um, that it is, you know, that this new system of 
ECCNs for this sort, these sorts of items so that you essentially make them more restrictive. And at least from what I saw, some of the items, you know, are, are in NS1, which means they will be restricted to quite a few or countries. On the other hand, uh, the, the license exception hopefully will be workable and, and take away a lot of the, the licensing onks that I guess a lot of countries would have that they're making legitimate sales in those countries. So hopefully it'll work. And I do think that, that um, you know, it's a good example of the fact that speed is not necessarily um, the sole, should not be the sole driver in this area that you want to get it right because these things will be on the books for a long time and they can, can have um, unintended consequences that you're trying really hard to avoid. Yeah, in particular, Tim hits on an important point, which was I think the original rules were caused such heartburn in part because of the an overbreath concern and the fact that they were going to, you know, really restrict, constrain, and do a lot of harm when it came to uh, software that's designed for cyber incident response, vulnerability disclosures, and and the like, and things that, as Tim said, you know, are part and parcel of sort of what everybody needs for um, kind of good cyber hygiene at this point and the idea that they would be uh, you know too heavily restricted uh, possibly to the point of requiring licenses to be able to uh, export or re-export them even to um, you know less heavily controlled countries at what to was our countries and the like was a was a big concern and so that's clearly a focus of this exercise here is to make sure that the appropriate um, the appropriate scope has been brought to bear here and that we're not in a position where um, there's going to be kind of too much. The rule is going to sort of do more harm than good. So so it will be interesting to see in particular what the comments come back on and, and whether or not the final um, rule as implemented in January is going to, assuming that that holds, is going to um, largely uh, stay intact as, as it has been um, put forth in the interim um, final rule. So we, so we shall see. Um, again, though, just and just one last kind of quick thought on that as well is that again we've. Um, it's interesting that right around this, in in the immediate wake of this, so the rule is rolled out a couple of weeks ago, and then we do see some entity list additions that target entities who are quite frankly exactly the kinds of entities that are meant to be um, to keep these types of items off limits to right in countries that are going to be of concern um, in all likelihood. And then um, similarly today we see OFAC act there as well. And I think it's just, um, you know, in the, in the past few months in particular, and, and I think being brought to a head with everything we've been talking about recently about ransomware, about virtual currencies, about cybersecurity kind of more broadly, um, the focus that DOJ has, is, is, bringing to bear on cybersecurity enforcement and, and cybersecurity investigations. I just think it is a, um, you know, this is all, this is not accidental is I think the, is the sort of main, not so earth shattering takeaway that I think I would have from this, but it is, this is really the drumbeat is steady here now when it comes to enforcement and tweaking of the tools to manage, restrict, control, and protect. U.S. national security interests when it comes to cybersecurity. I think this is just these these three actions, if you if you want to call them three separate actions, I think just speaks to that even more, even more um, sort of to the point. Yeah, the follow through appears to be there in this yeah. area. 
exactly. So with that, that's all we want to say on that for now. I think we will likely come back to that at some point, obviously, um, as that rule gets finalized. But do want to flag that for everybody. And with that, let's let's pivot to one of our favorite topics and maybe come at it from a slightly different angle than we've talked about recently, which is which is Huawei. So Brian, I don't know if you've heard this, but Huawei is on the entity list. <laughs> you don't um, say. I don't know that. It's it uh, it's a, a very um it, it is a very underlooked phenomenon in the export controls and sanctions space. But tonight and today we're going to shine some light. Breaking on news. The entity Breaking list. news. Breaking news. I think know. we've yeah. we've really cracked this story, and I hope we get credit when people start retweeting it. Um. So Huawei, Huawei is on the entity list, and as a result, um. You know there are serious restrictions on Huawei's ability to get uh, U.S. Uh, origin items, and in fact, the entity listing was modified in a in a Huawei-specific way to make it even harder to for Huawei to get items that were produced overseas, making them more likely to be subject to the EAR. Now, what that means is that Huawei can't get these items without a license. And there is a presumption of denial for the license. And in the last week, um, so none of that is new. Obviously, I was just kidding about the breaking news. But but um, but what's happened in the past couple of weeks is that the two things. One is uh, a company in in China called Seagate has apparently been supplying Huawei with items that uh, other companies believe are subject to the EAR and require a license to supply Huawei with, and that has created a, a Wall Street Journal report and some outcry, at least among Republican members in Congress, about why it is that Seagate is supposedly violating U.S. law. It's not totally clear that they are. At least the stories that I read um, suggest that they're violating U.S. law because other companies think that they need a license. And you know, as we know, sometimes companies are risk averse and go get a license when there's gray area. And sometimes other companies are less risk averse and think that they um, can comply with the law even without getting a license. So that may be what's going on, but there is some concern that, that Seagate is um, avoiding uh, the the entity listing and the restrictions on the entity listing by continuing to supply Huawei. That's one part of the development. The other part of the development is that uh, Congress had a report done that suggested that Huawei is still um, getting licenses for all sorts of U.S. origin goods. I think the number that I saw in the articles was was in the tens of billions. It might have even been over. It was 60 over billion. over sixty. 60. Billion. Yeah, that's what in I thought. Six, in just a six month period from late twenty twenty. Yeah. To early 2021. Yeah. So lots of U.S. origin goods are going to Huawei pursuant to licenses. So so, and that is consistent with the entity listing because the entity listing doesn't say no U.S. origin goods. Period. It says no U.S. origin goods without a license, and there's a presumption of denial for the license. Um, but but that has also caused an outcry in Congress. And again, it might be just posturing because the fact is is that. Um, most of these licenses are, I'm assuming, from U.S. manufacturers who are doing business in China, and so there are U.S. jobs at stake and U.S. the U.S. economy at stake, and so to the extent that uh, the regulators can determine that these particular exports don't have national security implications and, and thereby um, continue economic benefits to the US without threatening national security. That's what the licensing regime is supposed to do. And and so, you know, you are getting this 
visibility and transparency into what's happening with Huawei, while at the same time not completely shutting off the flow to Huawei. That's at least in theory, how the entity listing is supposed to work. It increases visibility, it restricts access, but it doesn't deny access. But there is kind of an outcry in Congress, and, and we may see, you know, legislation, uh, you know, it coming at at the Commerce Department to try and stop this sort of, um, you know, these sorts of licenses. Uh, although, you know, I, at least in the reporting I saw, there was no example of a particular license that was somehow inconsistent with U.S. foreign policy. But I think the 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 big number that we were just talking about is what has has people concerned. Yeah, I would say a couple. So a couple things. So so Seagate obviously. So Seagate's a, prim, my understanding is they're primarily based in California. So the outcry is in part the fact that this is a U.S. company that's supplying Huawei. Now, I will say, and Tim and I are well aware of many examples where there are U.S.-based companies that are supplying companies on the entity list in perfectly legal ways because these are items that are not, in fact, subject to the AR that they're providing them. We don't know at this point, based on what's in the report, the nature of what is actually being provided, whether or not it is, in fact, subject to the AR. As Tim alluded to, there's the Huawei you know, special foreign direct product rule that was implemented to really tighten restrictions. We don't know whether or not this was these were or were not items that were produced abroad that might have been subject to that and thereby caught by the EAR or not. We don't know much, right? This is just a report. We, we're not taking, so we're not taking a view on that whatsoever. All, all I would like to say on that is, it is more complicated than a simple headline that says this company in the US is supplying Huawei, therefore they must be violating the law. That doesn't necessarily, that is not necessarily so. Right. We know that very well. We know that there are plenty of companies that have US headquarters that have global supply chains that are able to, in certain instances, continue to do business with and supply entity list entities in part because they're providing items that are not subject to the AR. And we don't know what the reality is here. So I just flagged that number one. Number two is I think the point that Tim just raised about the authorized uh, activities or supply of Huawei 60 billion plus in a six month period that coincidentally bridges both the Trump and the Biden administration. So it's not all this year it's it's a care it's from late it's from fall of 2020 into april of 2021 that's when these numbers were run also smic as well that was added to the entity list last year received apparently 40 billion apparent uh, in exports during that same period roughly 40 billion so combined about 100 billion to two entity list entities that were front and center in the u.s kind of crackdown on china so to speak in you know in in the last couple of years so you know, taking a very reductive view of all this, it's not surprising that people are, and in particular, sort of China hawks, so-called China hawks, are sort of, you know, wringing their hands over all this. But I would say, as again, as Tim and I know very well, when you approach the Commerce Department for a authorization to export to an entity list entity or a military end user or any of these other kind of categories of end users that are now among the, or are the most heavily scrutinized, it is no simple feat. There is a lot of, there's a lot of care and attention and thought and interagency um, communications that happen to sort of vet those requests and those licenses. And so, you know, again, before anybody's jumping to conclusion here about these raw numbers, 
I would venture to say in all likelihood that, you know, I can't guarantee, but would venture to say that the vast majority of these were sort of given, uh, you know, very careful sort of vetting consideration uh, with all these things in mind. Now, you know, again, perhaps there is, if, if Congress is unhappy with that, or if others are unhappy with that, then there are things that can be done to perhaps tighten that up, close that up, or perhaps, you know, launch investigations of other kinds into, into what activities remain, what's authorized, what's not authorized. Um, but at the end of the day, when you're granting a license, that's a policy judgment. And if you get a license, then that's, that's the policy judgment of the U S government and of the commerce department, whether to do that or not do that. And obviously under both a Republican and a democratic administration, the judgment has been that it is at least permissible in certain circumstances to do that. And as Tim said, presumably this is all to the benefit of us companies. Now people may not want to hear that or think about that, especially, um, you know, if, if the big bad Huawei on the other side in China is the beneficiary of that, but that's the reality is that it's a cost benefit. It's being weighed, uh, each time. And, you know, it's not, it's not as simple as how did this ever happen? Um, and how did we let this happen? And we need to stop it. To me, that's just not the right question. That's not the right consideration. I think it's, it would be interesting to know a bit more about what, what were these licenses that were granted? I don't know that we'll right. ever get to that. But, and, and again, just in the same way that it would be interesting to know what was the nature of whatever Seagate may have provided and whether that was truly problematic or not, because I'm not presuming that it was necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I, a couple of things on that. I mean, first I went back and looked at the article. There was a sentence that confused me that seemed to suggest that Seagate was a Chinese company, but <laughs> apparently it's not. And that doesn't surprise me. Um, but second of all, um, I, I do think that this this whole issue comes up a lot with the entity list because I think when people think of quote unquote sanctioned U.S. companies, they think solely of the SDN list where you, you just can't have dealings with those companies and the chances of getting a license to deal with an SDN are often very small. And, it, it, and I've seen it in other contexts as well with the SSI list, the reporting is often like U.S. party doing business with sanctioned Russian company. And it's like, yeah, but there's all sorts of they're, things that you're allowed, allowed to, to do with yeah. an SSI in the same way with an entity list entity. There's all sorts of things that you're allowed to do. That doesn't mean that there's, you know, some things that are off limits. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of U.S. companies decide that it's just not worth the compliance risk to deal with them at all, even though you're allowed to. And so they make a risk-based decision not to deal with a, a company that you know, there's all sorts of legitimate dealings with, and Seagate might have made the other other choice. Again, I don't know, you know, the, exactly what happened in any of these things, and I'm not saying that Seagate, what Seagate is doing is consistent with the entity listing either. I just don't know, but I do know that there are lots of situations where one company decides that lawfully they can get to yes, and 10 other companies decide, you know, I it's too confusing to me, and I just don't want to get it wrong, and so I'm not going to do the business even though I might be able to. And that could easily be what's going on with Seagate. It certainly could be. I would also say just as one final thought or note on this, that um, to your point about the kind of reputational risk, this is literally the Wall Street Journal headline is what people fear right. and what they discuss. <laughs> and, right. And here we are. And, and the secondary point to that is when that happens, government enforcers notice. And so this is the, I, I participated in, I have been part of more than one large government investigation that was kicked off by an article in a, you know, fill in the blank, you know, high profile publication because some prosecutor somewhere took a look and said, Hey, we better start looking into this. And so, 
I'm not saying that I, I have again, I have no inside knowledge of that. I'm not saying that that that's what's warranted here necessarily, but that is certainly, of course, what what springs to mind as soon as you see something like this. Well, I mean, I think you know, it's a good it's a good reminder that if you're going to be the one when the when the ten other companies have decided that it's too risky, you better be sure because if you know you, you can get this sort of publicity, so you you may take a reputational hit even if you're not doing anything wrong, and that reputational hit is probably going to to result in some sort of scrutiny, either like a formal investigation or at least some close look by the government regulators. And if they take a close look and it looks, it still looks bad, um, you could be in a lot of trouble. So it is dangerous to be the one when the ten others take the 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 safer route. Yeah. So with that, let's pivot, let's pivot away there and go to our final sort of main China topic, which is this will be a quick one, which is China Telecom. So I, I wanted to. This is we're kind of g- getting into territory here that we don't typically cover, which is what used to be known as Team Telecom, uh, which uh, is somewhat near and dear to me, considering that I used to focus on this when I was at the Justice Department, but um, at least in part. But um, I, this is a big deal. What just came out sort of about two weeks ago, which is that the FCC announced that it was revoking and terminating China Telecom America's authority to provide telecom services in the U.S. Um, So some may say, huh, I'm surprised that China Telecom had that authority in the first place. (laughs) And for those who don't know, that authority was originally granted many, many years ago, long before this was ever the the current U.S.-China dynamic really existed. Uh, It was, I think it's close to 20 years ago that the original license was granted. And I think the the last time it was transferred uh, and looked at was maybe 15 years ago, almost at this point. It was sort of late 2000s. So I, I think I think President Bush was still in office at the time. So this is a long time ago. Um, for those who don't know what Team Telecom is or was, um, I guess it technically doesn't exist anymore because it's been replaced by a new executive order. But Team Telecom was essentially a collection of executive branch um, agencies chaired by um, my former colleagues at the Justice Department focused on national security issues that would receive referrals from the Federal Communications Commission on particular license applications or license holders that potentially presented national security issues. That's in an, I'm oversimplifying, but in a nutshell, that's what it was. It is, it, it essentially was and now is under the new executive order that's in place, which is EO 13913 which kind of fundamentally reset and reorganized Team Telecom and made it a little more orderly, more organized, um, and uh, set some some time limitations and, and some other things, things that people in the industry and the telecom industry have been clamoring for for years. That just came about finally in, in early 2020. Um, in, the, in the predecessor to that, in the Team Telecom era, it was a little more informal. And um, t- this China Telecom action kind of, begins back in that era and then is pulled through all the way till now. And in fact, the the executive branch agencies who who looked at this and formally um, weighed in on this recommended the revocation of China Telecom's license, right? It was, I think it was like within days, if not on the same day of the issuance of the executive order in April, 2020. Um, and they, they weighed in. There's a, um, for those who weren't tracking at the time, there was a there was a press release and some coverage of it at that time in April 2020. This is early days of the pandemic, so maybe many many of you might have had other things on your mind at the time. But um, they weighed in at that time, DOJ and others, 
recommended to the FCC that this um, that China Telecom's existing license be um, terminated, and then FCC eventually instituted a proceeding uh, late last year to sort of hear from China Telecom and, and any other interested parties to offer evidence as to perhaps why it should not take that act, that recommended action. And then ultimately in late October, they, they have now come down and, and concluded that they concur in that, um, that recommendation. And they are in fact revoking and terminating the license, which gives China Telecom 60 days to, um, basically, uh, pick up and uh, get out for lack of a better uh, term. And, and I think what's interesting and what I would encourage anybody to do who hasn't, who hasn't looked at this is um, the FCC has, a, has, has an interesting press release on this and then a couple of the commissioners weighed in. Um, and it basically, if you look at all of the reasons cited for the action taken, it tracks very closely. And by the way, I would also add the China Telecom for, for if it's ringing a bell for other reasons, they're also on the um, the NSCMIC list, the OFAC list for the under 13959. So they have already been identified as a um, as a Chinese military industrial complex company that is essentially involved in their case in um, the ability of the Chinese government to sort of surreptitiously um, conduct surveillance on on Chinese and non-Chinese persons and collect intelligence and engage in espionage activities and the like. So it is sort of all the same types of things that we hear with respect to Huawei or we hear with respect to um, other big Chinese telecom and tech companies, quite frankly. But it is this this mechanism through the FCC, to, for those who are not familiar with it, is a, is a powerful one. And it is, a, it is an important one. And again, as I said, it's now been... It is now kind of under this umbrella of this new executive order 13913 that sort of reorganized Team Telecom, so to speak, um, and remains a very powerful tool. It has been a slow moving tool in the past, but I think with respect to these big Chinese entities, China Telecom and a few others, um, they have been kind of big headline grabbing actions that have taken place. And I think it's just something to be aware of and another just kind of tool in the toolkit, so to speak, that everybody should be aware of um, when it comes to, you know, the U.S. government's ability to, to sort of constrain what can be done, especially in the United States. And so when it comes to FCC licenses, this is this is a powerful tool and, and one that, again, I just wanted to sort of flag for everybody. I don't have too much more to add than that, but this is a pretty, pretty, pretty red letter day when it comes to the use of this tool and the use and, and this um, authority when it comes to um, China Telecom finally getting the boot, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, so I I don't have much to say about this, but I, I do want to kind of highlight the the national security concerns raised here and compare them to some of the other national security concerns raised in, for example, an entity listing. So the concern here is that China Telecom is in the United States collecting data from U.S. persons uh, and at least you know, in the time since the Bush administration, the the civil uh, military fusion has increased. The level of government control over Chinese private industry has has increased, and so the concern is that 
you've got a, a Chinese company in the U.S. collecting U.S. data that is then going to be shared with the Chinese government and or the Chinese military. And, you know, you combine that with the with the cyber activity coming from the Chinese government and, and related agents and the concern about, you know, use of U.S. data against U.S. citizens. This seems like a, a big deal and a, a very sensible step. Uh, and one that is entirely within U.S. control, or at least much more within U.S. control. You know, the entity listings are done for foreign policy reasons, but a lot of times if our allies aren't involved, all you do is essentially make the Chinese go to a different supplier um, because you have an entity listing that keeps the Chinese from getting U.S. origin goods. But if there are sufficient replacement goods from foreign sources that are not imposing these same sorts of restrictions, you're really not hurting China at all and you're really not accomplishing your goal. But here, you know, the threat seems a lot more immediate and the threat seems like one where the U.S. actually can can actually crack down on the threat in a way that the entity listings often don't do. I'm not saying that the entity listing doesn't have its place, but I, I do think that it is a tool that is used a lot even when it can't be particularly effective, whereas here, this tool seems like it it's not used that often, but it is a, a much greater danger and and one where they have a chance of being much more effective. Yeah, and it's a good point of comparison that Tim raises. And and the other thing that, uh, and I think I alluded to this just quickly at the outset, it's often compared to a CFIUS-like process where those types of considerations are are assessed. And and in in a in a perfect world, this is all happening on the front end when there is a when there is an application pending or a renewal pending. Of course, this is this was a stickier situation because there had been a license granted many years ago sort of before the change in circumstances and the the sort of the threat posed by the the civil military fusion and and all of the things that are now kind of part and parcel of our of US sort of China policy were not as front and center or not as well kind of developed or understood and so um it it is it does it bears some resemblance to CFIS certainly in terms of the way that it uh it, aims at gathering this information on the front end, potentially mitigating risks when possible, or perhaps precluding if it if it requires preclusion or termination, as, as is the case here. So it that's, I think, the most um, relevant analog in many ways, although the, the processes are not exactly the same. But, but that's just for those, again, who are unfamiliar, something to just kind of be, be aware of. And I, and I do think Frankly, this is going to be an area where we see more activity, and we have already seen more activity, quite frankly, since the new executive order was put into place last year. So, something to keep an eye on and um, and not lose sight of as we as we move forward. So, with that, let's leave China briefly uh, before we come back to it in the lightning round, and let's go to Turkey and talk about Hawk for a second. We'll We'll talk about Turkey and a little bit of Iran. This was the Iran teaser as well. Yeah. So Halk Bank um, is a Turkish state-owned bank. Uh, it was Its name came up quite a bit uh, a few years ago in the trial of one of its executives, uh, Mr. Attila. And um, Mr. Attila's case was probably in some ways overshadowed by Mr. Zarab's case, but uh, Mr. Zarab never went to trial. He wound up cooperating with the government and being the star witness in the case against the the Hulk Bank executive. And what was described there was a was a plan um, using Hulk Bank in in part to uh, to essentially transfer oil reserves. Or money that was was in a Turkish bank based on you know there's a there when 
as part of the Iran sanctions, there is a, a significant reduction exception that certain countries can get. And if they get that significant reduction exception, they're allowed to buy Iranian oil for a certain amount of time. And uh, the, but what they have to do with the proceeds is essentially lock it up in a um, local bank, Hulk Bank being the bank here that where these reserves were locked up, and it can only be used by the Iranians um, to buy food and medicine. And the allegation in the Attila case was that that was not what was happening. That the, essentially the that Hulk Bank with Zarab and Attila were funneling the money back to Iran um, in the guise in food and medicine sales, but there was a lot more going on than that. And, uh, and, and Zarab had been kind of the person who was the mastermind of this, and Attila was, uh, it was working with the bank to do this. And all the while, as OFAC was watching, they were making false statements to OFAC as to what they were doing. And again, I'm I'm probably oversimplifying, but that's the gist of the case against Attila, and it's now the gist of the case against Hulk Bank, which is charged in I, I believe it's SDNY. Yeah. Um, correct. With with uh, money laundering, making false statements to to OFAC about this, uh, and I believe IEPA, IEPA sanctions yeah. vi violations under IEPA. Yeah. And so so Hulk Bank, because it is a state-owned entity, moved to dismiss on the ground of sovereign immunity. And uh, it lost, and after it lost in the district court, uh, sovereign immunity is one of the few issues that there is often a, is subject to the collateral order doctrine, so you can take an interlocutory appeal before you've actually been convicted. And so Hulk Bank tried to take that appeal, and the Second Circuit allowed the appeal to go forward, but one of the issues in the case was, was whether or not uh, the collateral order doctrine even applied to this sort of uh, sovereign immunity type appeal. The Second Circuit said that it did. But then after finding that it did, it took on Hulk Bank's main contention, which was that uh, because the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act does not have an explicit exception uh, allowing suits against foreign sovereigns for criminal acts, that it, that at least by negative reference, that that law uh, was meant to not allow criminal cases to be brought against uh, foreign sovereigns. The Second Circuit didn't decide that issue, at least writ large, because essentially what Alkbank wanted to say is you can't charge any state-owned entity or any foreign state in the U.S. courts in a criminal case. The Second Circuit said, no, you can, or at least they kept open the idea that you could, but they said that you certainly could if the conduct fits within one of the other Foreign, foreign Sovereign Immunities Act exceptions. And here, the exception that it fit within, according to the Second Circuit, was the commercial activity exception, because essentially what they said was, these are just banking claims. These are just, you know, you, 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 when, when Turkey decided to set up a state-owned bank, if the state-owned bank, ex it, uh, you know, conducted itself through standard commercial banking activities that any bank could do, then uh, then it was became subject to the commercial activity exception of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which allows uh, which allows the U.S. courts to consider claims where against sovereign entities if they are engaging in certain commercial activity. And so it was it it had the potential to be a really big case, and to the extent that it had decided that. Uh, foreign sovereigns were immune from criminal liability in the U.S. court. It didn't go that far, and it didn't actually resolve that issue at all. But it still was an important case because I think it is similar um, in some ways to what was happening in, in Huawei with Mrs. Meng. So there was a real discussion there of what are these 
lawsuits about. And, and in that one, the claim by Mrs. Meng was that it was a sanctions case. And because Canada didn't have the same sort of Iran sanctions regime, that it wasn't extraditable because it wasn't really a sanctions case and the government took the position, no, 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 it's just a fraud case. And, and here it's kind of similar. The government's taking the position that this is not about the state doing anything wrong. This was not tur actions by the Turkish state. This was just a bank that happened to be owned by the, by the government, but they were doing things that were improper with respect to banking, just the same as a, a private bank could do. And so therefore they don't get any more immunity than a private bank would. And so again, we've had you know, some rulings that are really getting at the heart of what a sanctions violation is. And I think, um, you know, it really is, it, it really is the trend now to, to fit sanctions within the more broad general framework, in part because our sanctions laws are so much broader than anybody else's. Yeah. So a couple of, couple of things here. So I think Tim brings up a good point, which is, uh, you know, if this had gone out, if this has come out the other way, this would obviously be a much bigger deal. Uh, and could have really done quite a bit of damage to a lot of the uh, the sort of underpinnings of U.S. certainly criminal sanctions. Um, well, the FCPA, right? I mean, right. Even beyond the way IEPA gets applied in terms of the sanctions context, FCPA and otherwise could have done a lot of really could have upended that, and perhaps that's a little too much weight to bear on the other side if this were to come out that way. Although this was found, you know, was decided on relatively narrow grounds. It is like Tim said, it's just the question of whether the commercial activity exception applies here. And the, the court found clearly that it did. Um, I would note that I think there's a pending request for hearing on Bonk at the second circuit. So that's still TBD, whether that'll happen. Obviously they could try to take it up to the Supreme court as well. Um, hats off to the lawyers who have brought this, who I know very well at Wims and Connolly. So I wouldn't count them out, but it looks like this may be, you know, this issue may be, may have run its course, at least for now. Um, and so obviously that's also significant because it paves the way potentially for, a, for the Hawk Bank trial to happen at some point next year. Although I think the timing of that's a little uncertain, but I think to me, the bigger, the bigger takeaways here are kind of what this could have signaled or what um, I think is, is, instructive for potential future cases like this, as Tim mentioned, with respect to not that this would sort of squarely be the case with Huawei, but with other, certainly with Chinese banks, you could see this being the case or other financial institutions. I think this is significant and, and is going to be a difficult hurdle for any state-owned banks to overcome in the future, in part for a couple of reasons. I'll just read a couple quick excerpts. So in terms of looking at the applicability of the commercial activity exception, the, the Second Circuit noted that whether a foreign state acts in, in the manner of a private party to engage in commercial activity is thus a question of behavior, not motivation. So it's essentially just an objective look at the way that the bank was conducting itself with regard to the charged conduct here. And, and it goes down and, and sort of notes that, um, you know, although Hawk Bank's a majority owned by the government of Turkey, it was having communications, as Tim noted, with OFAC that are plainly the type of activity in which banks, including privately owned correspondent banks, routinely engage. And so, uh, as they had noted in another case where they were talking about uh, a potential foreign sovereign immunity claim in the context of copyright infringement, they, they observed literally anyone can do copyright infringement, so too can literally any bank violate sanctions. And so the fact that you are a state-owned bank does not necessarily put you in some exclusive category that takes you out of the 
um, that takes you out of consideration and sort of immunizes, you know, that type of normal run of the mill commercial financial activity that all banks have to engage in. And that they may involve the U S whether directly or as an effect thereof. Um, and, and, and that still, I think pretty squarely is preserved here now as a result of this. And so I think, I think to me, that's kind of the, that's kind of the most interesting little kernel in here is that as we look at whatever the next case will be, or the next case will be, because this is clearly an argument that is not going to necessarily go away when it comes to these types of cases, to the extent that they are being, you know, litigated to the full extent and potentially, you know, prepared for trial. Um, that, that's, that's sort of a, that's an interesting little, you know, kind of, um, element of this that I think is going to, is going to remain. And it's going to be a difficult thing to reckon with, quite frankly, um, in the future for other, you know, SOEs who may be looking at bringing similar challenges under Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act grounds. Yeah, and and you know just to to give Williams and Conley their due and to 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 set the stage for the possibility that this could either go up to the Supreme Court or could be a candidate for en banc review. I mean the the argument was you know the the when you see the opinion it's like well yeah they're just acting like a bank, but there actually were arguments on the other side. I mean part of the reason I went through that discussion about the the NDAA and and the the significant reduction exception was because that was only available to countries. To governments. And yep. so you've got it. There is this governmental function in the background that was the that was really what what this this scheme in the government's view this scheme was, was predicated upon, on yeah. was was that you had to be to to do this you had to be a country which is it does kind of take it out of the the realm of well anybody could violate a copyright yeah anybody can engage in this action but in order to to, to get your admission to the club to engage in this action, you had to be a government. And so there is some sort of government function going on in the background, which is what made the argument pretty powerful. Again, it, the opinion doesn't read that way. It, certainly this court wasn't persuaded by that, but I could see other judges being persuaded by that argument. Right. No, that's a very good point. Very good point. So in any event, we'll leave that for now, but but an interesting recent opinion that we wanted to flag. We'll keep an eye on that. I'm sure that we may, We we I think we, we haven't talked about this case in a while since um, it sort of became active, um, but I would imagine that um, I would imagine that if it if it does continue on toward trial, we'll obviously be keeping a close watch. And if there's anything that comes of this ruling, we'll we'll I'm sure come back to it. So so with that, let's um, let's wrap. That's our main portion of the show for today. And then I will pause for the lightning round sound effect. And we only have one lightning round topic for today. Which brings us back to China, and in particular, something we talked about last time, which is Taiwan. And so, we we talked a little bit about the simmering tensions with respect um, to Taiwan and uh, the U.S. and China, and and sort of the staring contest that is uh, developing, or the the slightly scarier version than a, of a staring contest that's developing with respect to China and the U.S. and Taiwan. The the most recent sort of relevant wrinkle in this, and it's not a new wrinkle, but it is one that has gotten a little bit of publicity in, in the recent days, which is why I flag it, is the idea that um, Taiwan should become a full member of the UN. And uh, the US is supportive of this. China is adamantly opposed to this. There have been a number of think pieces and articles that have kind of been written about this in, in recent days. And again, you know, we, we sort of teed this up the last time in part because I think it's an interesting thought exercise at this point to say, 
you know, there, there are those who are writing about potential armed conflict when it comes to Taiwan, if China were to invade and would the U.S. come to defend them? And, and President Biden has, has said that, that the U.S. would. Um, but I think from the in the sort of diplomatic sanctions, other kind of trade related measures that, you know, on the chessboard and in the toolkit that we focus on mostly, I think that's kind of, you know, where where our heads tend to go. Um, immediately on this. And and so the UN is kind of an interesting wrinkle in part because, you know, it's obviously playing into, um, you know, there's a, there's kind of a, there's a democratic principles issue. There's human rights. There's some of the other things that I also saw another, there was sort of not that this is directly related, but the, the state department issued some statements in the past week or so that were poking China's eye again about Hong Kong because of some additional, um, activities in Hong Kong and the national security law and the degradation of democracy and free speech and et cetera. And it's kind of all, again, it's kind of all part of, it's all of a piece. Um, not, even though it seems a bit different, it's not all that different than what we opened the pod with, but, but I guess just wanted to tease some of that up to, for your consideration, Tim. And, and if you think there's anything more here or anything that this, you know, I think we're going to hear again, there's going to be kind of a steady, stream of these kinds of Taiwan related stories. And, and I think sooner or later, one of them is going to, is going to unfortunately result in, um, you know, some kind of action that uh, is, is going to be taken perhaps more harshly by one side or the other, but um, just thought that this was, was worth, you know, 90 seconds of our time to think about here and to close the show. Yeah, so just a few thoughts. So first, reading back through the materials and, and particularly the the legislative history arising out of this and from the 70s, it was interesting to me to see that this apparently is where the doctrine of strategic ambiguity, the formal doctrine of it, came from, which one of our favorite, one of our favorite, our one favorite, of our favorite and least favorite doctrines all the same right, time. Right, OFAC has taken that and run with it. But apparently, uh, back in the 70s, this was the official, and, and still is, and there, there's a law that adopted it, the official policy of the United States is to make China think that if it were to invade Taiwan, we would come to its aid, but at the same time to make Taiwan think that if China were to invade, we wouldn't come to its aid, or at least to leave enough ambiguity that neither Taiwan nor China knows what would happen in the case that, that, that China invaded. Now, I will say that even though that appears to be the legislative policy of the U.S., um, President Biden seems to have you know, eliminated the ambiguity with respect to, to China at the very least and to Taiwan, I guess. I mean, by saying saying multiple times now that if China were to invade, the U.S. would come to its aid. There's not much ambiguity there, um, which is why apparently his advisors have come back afterward and say, no change in policy. The policy is still the same, although that doesn't sound exactly right <laughs> since, since the policy was to be ambiguous on this and he was not ambiguous. But that all that said, um, I, I think you know you put your finger on it, Brian. This this is what we saw happen in in Hong Kong, and and I think that that for a while China was testing with this national security law in Hong Kong and seeing what would happen, and saw that you know the most that would happen would be there would be a sanctions program that you know may or may not be effective, but certainly does not seem to have deterred China in in much of any way with respect to Hong Kong. And I think what we're seeing now with Taiwan is kind of the similar sort of testing. Now, Taiwan is a little bit diff different in the sense that, um, you know, with Hong Kong, China had actual physical control over Hong Kong. It just had, at least for a while, 
honored this agreement where there were two systems and so Hong Kong had a separate system, but physically it was within Chinese control. Taiwan is a little bit different because it's not physically within in China's control, at least not now, although China is very close and has a very big army. And so so it is um, a dangerous situation for Taiwan. But we'll see what happens in terms of escalating the pressure and we'll see what happens from the U.S. side in terms of how much um, how willing it is to, to take steps to protect Taiwan's economy and, and how um, able it is to take those steps. I mean, you know, it is an interesting scenario where Taiwan is literally right on China's doorstep and the U.S. is still still saying that it's in our national interest to, to essentially stop China from, from going after Taiwan. And, and whether that turns out to be true or whether it turns out to be posturing, I guess we're just going to see. Yeah, I just think it's, again, this is, uh, and maybe we'll give it a rest on the next episode, but I do think that we've kind of reached a bit of a, flashpoint on this where um, we're close to a tipping point. And I think this is going to be a big issue that we are going to be wrestling with on the on the trade compliance side before too long because of actions that are absolutely right now unforeseen. But, um, you know, it is just to anybody out there who is who is kind of sleeping on this situation, I would certainly encourage you not to be because it, it, it feels very much like we are um, on the precipice here and that there are some things that may be coming soon um, probably for ill in the first instance that everybody's going to have to be aware you know react to and be vigilant about and and the policymakers and others are going to you know take a lot of um, are likely going to you know spring into action so i think we i think it's just that's part of the reason why we want to just flag it again very quickly it's a thorny problem i mean on the one hand you know taiwan is a democracy it, it, a longtime u.s ally protects human rights on the other hand i mean china has a legitimate interest in in um geographic territories are that are that close to its doorstep and historically has a you know it was the Chinese government that that went into exile into in Taiwan. So it's complicated from the Chinese perspective. It's complicated from the U.S. perspective because, on the one hand, I think our instinct would be to say it's so much a part of China. It should China should be allowed to deal with it. On the other hand, we don't want to we don't want to abandon a democratic ally in that region. And so I think it's very hard. And I think you're right that. Ultimately, what hard issues get to often get resolved in U.S. policy by saying, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna impose trade sanctions and see how that works." Press releases from the State Department are not going to do the trick, I think. So we'll have to see what um, we'll have to see where we go from here. But in any event, let's leave that for now. Uh, that's that's a wrap for today. That is our uh, that is our show. Um, thanks to everybody for joining again. Uh, this will be up some point, uh, hopefully late this week. Um, again, we may or may not be back with one more before the end of the month, depending on how Thanksgiving schedules here in the U.S. or in Canada, in Tim's case, may, in Canada. may, may align. Um, <laughs> I can confirm it will be Thanksgiving schedules in Thanksgiving Canada. Thanksgiving in Canada. Um, very difficult to get recording time up in uh, in, in Canada um, around Thanksgiving. It's a, just a flood of Americans that are up there recording podcasts. We can, we can make the time. Um, we can make the time. <laughs> but, uh, but in any event, thanks to everybody again. And uh, until next time, stay safe and stay sanctions free. Thanks, everybody. Stay sanctions free, everybody. Right.